Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. As I sat down this past week to write the sermon for today, I had intended originally to press onward in our study of 1 Timothy. But as I consider the fact that this is the first Sunday of the year 2021, I began to reflect upon the past year. And I think you would agree with me that it was a difficult one. It was a difficult year for the world and our nation. It was filled with challenges for our congregation. And most of us have also experienced hardships of various kinds in our personal lives as well. The, the year 2020 is going to be remembered as a difficult year. And I think it is right for us to acknowledge that. Yet, and here is what I wish to emphasize today, the Lord has been faithful to preserve us. He has refined us through the trials and the tribulations. He's been gracious to us. He's been kind to us. And it is only right for us to, to give him thanks before moving on to a new year. I've chosen Psalm 66 as our scripture text for this morning. Please turn there if you have not already. In the book of Psalms, we find many types of psalms or genres. There are hymns of praise. There are psalms of lament, confidence, and thanksgiving, to name just a few of the genres that are found within the book of Psalms. And one of the reasons the psalms are so cherished by the people of God is that they express the whole range of human emotion, from utter despair to jubilant celebration. No matter your situation in life, you may open the book of Psalms and find an inspired song there which expresses the condition of your heart. And at the end of a year like 2020, it seems right to fill our hearts and minds with a psalm like Psalm 66, which is a psalm of thanksgiving. Here are the distinguishing characteristics of thanksgiving psalms. One, they give thanks to God. And two, for his deliverance from trouble. And so they have these two components to them. They're filled with thanksgiving. They're filled with praise. But the thanksgiving is in response to some act of deliverance from God. God has rescued his people from trouble. And this is what is prompting the praise. If no deliverance from trouble were mentioned, then the psalm would be called a hymn of praise. And if there were no thanksgiving or jubilant celebration, then the psalm would be called a lament. So psalms of thanksgiving are a combination of lament and praise. In them, the psalmist remembers some difficulty, which in times past did cause despair, from which the Lord has delivered his people, and he responds with thanksgiving and praise. As I have said, a meditation upon a thanksgiving psalm seems fitting as we reflect upon the past year and as we prepare our hearts for the year to come. Let us go now to Psalm 66 and give ourselves to the reading of God's most holy word. To the choir master, a song, a psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Selah. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, who keeps, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. 
we went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Selah. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed, blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. As we begin to consider this beautiful psalm, let me make just a few very general observations. One, this is a psalm of thanksgiving, as I have said. In it, the psalmist gives thanks to God for the salvation from trouble that God has provided. Two, we do not know who the author is, for it is not stated. Some believe the author is David, given that Psalm 66 is situated in the midst of a group of psalms that are attributed to him. Uh, this grouping of Davidic psalms runs from Psalm 51 through to Psalm 70. Perhaps 71 is also included in this grouping. And so Psalm 66 is found right in the midst of this group of psalms that are attributed to David. And so some do believe that David is to be considered the author of this one as well. Three, we do not know what exact trouble it was that God delivered his people from. Both the title of the psalm and the description of the trouble found in verses 10 through 12 are generic. We are left to wonder what exactly the trial was from which the Lord delivered his people. Four, this psalm is obviously divided into four parts by the three occurrences of the Hebrew word selah. They come at the end of verses 4, 7, and 15. Now, there is some debate as to what the Hebrew term selah means, but the majority opinion is that it means pause and think or pause and reflect. It may have been a musical term that signaled an instrumental interlude to give time for the worshiper to pause and to reflect upon what had just been sung. And we should not ignore these markers. They do help us to see uh, the structure of the psalm, and therefore they do help us to interpret the psalm appropriately. Five, upon closer examination, this psalm is actually divided into five parts. While there is no selah to interrupt verses 8 through 15, this section obviously consists of two parts. You will notice that in verse 13, the psalmist transitions from the use of plural pronouns, us and our, to the singular pronoun, I. There in verse 13 through 15, the psalmist is very personal. He describes what it is that he does in response to God's deliverance. He runs to the temple and gives thanks to God. And so there are obviously two parts to verses 8 through 15, though there is no selah to, to divide them. And 6 these five parts have a flow to them. And I think this is very important for us to recognize. There is a flow to this psalm. In part one, all the peoples of the earth are called to give praise to God. 
There is a call to worship there. In part two, all people are invited to come and to consider what God has done for Israel to deliver them. In part three, all people are called to consider the Lord's preservation of Israel. In part four, the psalmist himself responds with appropriate praise. He runs to the temple and gives worship to God. And lastly, in part five, the psalmist testifies to all who fear God to consider the goodness of the Lord and to respond as he has. He invites them to do so. He invites those who fear God to come and to offer up jubilant praise to the God of Israel. And so the psalm moves progressively from a very broad call to the nations to worship the God of Israel down to a very personal call to worship. His testimony is given. Come and consider and see what the Lord has done for my own soul, the psalmist says in conclusion. The psalm is indeed a thanksgiving psalm, but it is important to notice that it is also a call to worship. Shout for joy to God all the earth, verse 1 says. And in verse 8, bless our God, O people. This worship is to be offered up to God in response to the salvation that he has provided. And so the psalmist summons us in verse 5 to come and see what God has done. And in verse 15, come and hear what he has done. This is a wonderful invitation to all the peoples of the earth, to come and to consider the marvelous works of God and to respond with praise. And as I have said, it seems right for us to do this very thing at the conclusion of a difficult year. We must remember what God has done for us and be moved to give him thanks and praise. So now that we see the shape of the psalm, let us take some time to consider its parts. In verses 1 through 4, the psalmist calls upon all the people of the earth to praise God. Verse 1 Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Selah. Truly, there is enough material here in verses 1 through 4 for a sermon all its own. I will have to be very selective and brief with my comments, therefore. One, do see the concern that the that old covenant Israel had for the nations. We must notice this. It is not uncommon to find a call for the nations of the earth to come and to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, in the Psalms. And this is not surprising when we consider that God's purpose for calling and setting apart Abraham was to bless the nations of the earth through his, his offspring. Israel came from Abraham. The Christ came from Israel, and Christ came to save not only the Hebrews, but people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The psalmist understood that this was the plan, and so he, like an evangelist, calls all the peoples of the earth to come and to shout for joy to God, the God of Israel. Two, we are to notice that the praise that is to be offered up to the God of Israel is to be joyful and glorious praise, for God is glorious, and the works that he has accomplished on our behalf are marvelous works. And brothers and sisters, I want for you to consider this. The psalmist is here calling out to you and to me to give glory to the God of Israel. We are the people of the earth to whom the psalmist speaks. Yes, it is true we live thousands of years after him, and yes, we live in a land that he did not even know existed, but we are the Gentile peoples to whom he spoke. It is you and me who are to come to God and who are being called by the psalmist to come to God and to shout for joy to the Lord. 
and to offer him glorious praise. Brothers and sisters, we are to remember that God has called us to himself for this purpose, to worship and serve him all the days of our life. And when we prepare for worship on the Lord's Day, we must keep this in mind. We must come prepared to sing joyfully to God and to give him the glory that is due his name. We must prepare our hearts for this. We do not only always feel like giving God joyful worship, but we must, and we have reason to, because God has been good to us. He has redeemed us. He has accomplished marvelous works on our behalf, and we are to respond in a way that is fitting. Three, it is, in fact, the awesomeness of God's deeds and the greatness of his power that is to motivate our praise. When I read the words, how awesome are your deeds, in verse 3, I think of God's work in creation and in redemption. When we consider God's work of creation, it should move us to joyful and glorious praise. And when we consider his work of redemption, it should move us even more so. For in God's work of redemption, it is not only his power that is shown, but also his mercy and grace. God works powerfully to redeem us. But when we consider his works of redemption, we see that he is merciful, he is gracious, he is kind. Consider, for example, how God provided an ark for Noah in the days of the flood. Consider how he rescued Israel from Egyptian bondage. And consider, above all, the death of Christ, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. In all of these acts of deliverance, God's mercy is displayed. But consider this, so too is his wrath. Noah and his family were saved, but the world was destroyed. The Israelites were set free, but the Egyptians were judged. And in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, but the wrath of God was poured out upon him as he stood in our place. And so we are to see that when we consider God's gracious work of redemption, we are also to consider his justice and his wrath. And this is what the psalmist calls us to do. He says, give to God glorious praise. And we are to say to him, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. And so our psalm begins with a call to all the people of the earth to come and to worship the God of Israel. And what is to motivate us to come? We're to come considering his mercy and grace, the marvelous works that he has accomplished for our redemption. And also we are to come considering his terrible and awesome judgments. We are to consider how God's enemies cringe before him and this is to move us to come and to partake of his grace to worship and bow down for his deeds are awesome and he is worthy so in the first portion of this psalm we have a call to worship this call to worship is given to all the peoples of the earth all nations are to come and to give glory to the god of israel they're to praise him for his marvelous works he has redeemed his people, he has provided redemption, and one day he will surely judge. In verses 5 through 7, we find an invitation to all the people of the earth to come and consider what God has done to accomplish redemption for his people. So first we have a call to worship. Now there's this invitation. Verse 5, come and see what God has done. Come and consider it. In other words, he is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, who keeps, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. 
Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Here in this section, the psalmist testifies to the glory of God in redemption. Again, he is like an evangelist imploring all people, Jew and Gentile alike, to come and consider God's work of redemption. Come and see what God has done, he says. Come and see what a marvelous invitation this is. Come and consider the redemption that the Lord has provided. When he says he turned the sea into dry land, he speaks of the Exodus event and the parting of the Red Sea at the hand of Moses. And when he says they passed through the river on foot, he speaks of the stopping up of the Jordan in the days of Joshua at the end of the wilderness wanderings and at the very beginning of the conquest of the promised land. These were two very significant events as God accomplished redemption for Israel. He brought them out of Egypt and he parted the Red Sea so that they could pass through. They did on dry land and the waters closed over the the Egyptians. And after 40 years of wilderness wanderings, the Lord did stop up the Jordan River so that the nation of Israel might pass through the river on into the land of promise that was given to them. And when he says, there did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, who keeps, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Here, the psalmist is reminding us of God's providential care for Israel and the way that he did keep the nations at bay so that Israel might have success. This entire section is an invitation to all mankind to come and consider the great and marvelous work of redemption which God did accomplish for Israel. Come and see what God has done, he says. Living now after the arrival of the Christ and the accomplishment of our redemption from sin and death through his shed blood, it is right that we do what the psalmist implores us to do, to consider what God did for Israel to deliver them from Egyptian bondage, to lead them through the wilderness and bring them safely into the land of promise. It is right for us to consider those things and to give God joyous and glorious praise, saying, How awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. But now that the Christ has come to accomplish our redemption, we must not stop there. We must not only consider the great act of deliverance that God accomplished for Old Covenant Israel, but we must also consider our redemption in Christ, which is far greater. We are to consider our redemption in Christ, our deliverance from the kingdom of darkness, sin, and death. For we have passed from death to life, not by passing through the waters of the Red Sea, but by being washed in Christ's shed blood. The words, come and see what God has done, have greater significance for us now, not less. We have more to speak of. We have more to say to the nations. Not only are we to point to that great act of deliverance that God accomplished for Old Covenant Israel, that deliverance was typological, by the way. It pointed forward to what Christ would accomplish. But we are able to say, look at what God has done for us. He has provided the Christ. And this Christ has atoned for sin. And in him there is salvation. We are to say what the psalmist has said. Come and see what God has done. We are to call out to the nations. Come and see what God has done. And we are to implore them to give worship to the God of Israel. Brothers and sisters, come and see what God has done. Perhaps this should be our call to worship each and every Lord's day. Come and see what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Consider our redemption in him and shout for joy to God. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. This we should do 
each and every Lord's Day and day by day. And how important it is for us to come and see what God has done, especially in times of difficulty, when we are plagued with trials and tribulations. We must fix our eyes upon Christ and the work that he has accomplished for us in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And when we do, we gain perspective. It is only after we consider our redemption in Christ that we are able to confidently say with Paul the Apostle, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, inter who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I love these questions that the apostle puts to us. He has confidence and he wants us to have confidence too. He wants us to know that God has accomplished our redemption and there is nothing that we should fear. No, he responds as I continue in Romans 8. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are only able to respond with this confidence after we fix our eyes upon the redemption that has been accomplished for us through the shed blood of Christ, brothers and sisters. This we must do. Lord's day by Lord's day, and even day by day, we must come and see what God has done. This is the invitation that we should extend to the nations, but it is also the invitation that we should extend to one another each and every Lord's day. Come and see what God has done. Consider his work of redemption accomplished in the days of Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Christ. Come and see. And having considered God's awesome deeds, shout for joy to God Give the glory, uh, sing the glory of his name, rather. Give to him glorious praise. This is the only appropriate response to the great works of God. In verses 8 through 12 now, the psalmist calls all people to consider God's preservation in the midst of tribulation, which does involve testing and refinement for the people of God. God tests his people. He refines them, but he does also preserve them in the trial. And the psalmist wants us to fix our eyes upon that fact. Verse 8, bless our God, O peoples, another call to worship. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. In other words, God has preserved us. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried you brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. It is difficult to know what trial the psalmist had in mind as he wrote verses 8 through 12. These verses do seem to describe Israel's time in Egyptian bondage, followed by the Exodus event. But they may also refer to many other trials in the nation's history. I think the vagueness is deliberate. The reader or the worshiper is to be moved by this passage to consider the way that God has preserved his people in the midst of trial and tribulation 
from generation to generation. Friends, we must recognize this. To belong to God in this world does not mean that you will be free from trials and tribulations. We must consider the experience of God's chosen people, Abraham and all of his descendants. They suffered in this world as they sojourned. Consider that Joseph was sold into slavery. Consider Israel in Egyptian bondage. Consider Israel in the wilderness wanderings. Consider King David when he was on the run from Saul in those years before the throne was securely his. And consider Jesus the Christ, his disciples, and the church throughout the history of the world. God's people are not immune to trials and tribulations. God's people do suffer. But God is with us in our suffering. That is the point. God is with us in our suffering. He keeps us. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip, the psalmist says. He tests us to refine us. That is also emphasized here. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. In fact, the psalmist goes on to say, as he speaks to the Lord here, you brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. This is very strong language that he uses here. And I want for you to see how unashamed the psalmist is to confess that it was God who willed the trial. Whatever the trial was, it was God who willed the trial. He speaks to God saying, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men right over our heads. Now, it is not God who did the evil, but the Egyptians and other wicked men. But here we must confess it was God who permitted the trial, and he permitted it for a purpose. And the psalmist does not hesitate to confess this. In fact, he confesses it willingly before the nations, and he confesses it as a reason for praise. Brothers and sisters, that God permits his people to suffer trials and tribulations to refine them and bring about a greater good and glory to his name is not a doctrine to be rejected. It is to be a doctrine that we are to warmly embrace. There is comfort for the people of God in this doctrine. God is with us in our suffering. We must know this for certain. God is, God is not absent. He is not distant, but he is with us through the trial and through the tribulation. And more than this, he has willed our suffering for our good and his glory. This too, we must confess along with the psalmist. God has willed it. This means that there is purpose in it. And I want you to see that the psalmist is eager to confess this. He does not hide this reality, but invites the nations to come and see. Come and see how God has permitted our afflictions. He has preserved us through them so that we might be refined as silver. That is his message. God's people do suffer. This is a fact that cannot be denied. Christ himself suffered in the flesh. So did his apostles and the prophets before him, going all the way back to righteous Abel, whose blood was shed. God's people suffer in this world. The question is, how do we interpret this fact? How do we interpret this fact? And I suppose there are a number of possibilities, rationally speaking. Perhaps we might say that God is not in control. He lacks the power to protect his people from harm.
but we know that this cannot be. Or perhaps God does not love his people. Maybe he hates them, and so he afflicts them. And this answer is also unacceptable according to the scriptures. What then shall we say? What should we say in response to the fact that God does allow his people to suffer? Well, we must say what the scriptures say. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. And according to James, we are to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And we are to let steadfastness have its full effect that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the perspective of James. There is a purpose to the trials. God is in them. He is using them uh, to refine us and to accomplish marvelous things, though we might not understand all the details, brothers and sisters. And again, bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our souls among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. This is the perspective of the psalmist as he considers the sufferings of the people of God. He confesses that God was the one who permitted it, who brought it about, but he was with them in the midst of the trial to preserve them and to refine them, and he gives glory to God for these things. This was the experience of Israel in Egypt, in the Exodus event and in the conquest of the land of Canaan. A crushing burden was on their back. They passed through fire and through water, yet God brought them out to a place of abundance. This was the experience of Christ. He was tested and tried. Men did right over his head, and yet the Father brought him out to a place of abundance. Through suffering and death, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And this was the experience of the psalmist himself and all who are in Christ. Yes, even the martyr. This is the martyr's experience. God permits trials and tribulations. He refines us through them, and so we count them all joy. And he preserves our souls, bringing us out to that place of abundance. And what is that place of abundance ultimately? Ultimately, this place of abundance is the new heavens and the new earth. God will bring all of his people safely home, and we can have confidence in these things. I will tell you, brothers and sisters, I do believe this to be a characteristic of one who is mature in Christ. The one who is mature in Christ knows that God is with him in the midst of the trial and is confident that God is working good through it. Though they might not understand all of the details, though there might be much that is mysterious, they, they know that God is with them in the midst of the trial and they are confident that God is working good through the trial. And they are not ashamed to say what the psalmist has said. Bless our God, O peoples, for you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver, is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Those who are strong in faith know for certain that God will bring them out to a place of abundance. They know this not because they see it with perfect clarity, but they see it with eyes of faith. Now, there is a significant transition in verse 13. The psalmist speaks very personally and reveals to us how he will respond, saying, 
I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats, say law. And so clearly, after calling all people to worship, and after inviting all to consider God's marvelous works of redemption and preservation, the psalmist puts himself forth as the example. He runs to the temple to worship God extravagantly with burnt offerings and fattened animals, costly rams, bulls, and goats. It's as if he is calling us to follow him there and to do likewise. He has implored the people of the earth to shout to joy for God, and he has invited them to come and see what God has done. And now, having done this himself, he runs to worship the Lord extravagantly, hoping that as he does, the nations will follow him. As I consider the structure of Psalm 66 and the obvious transition that takes place in verse 13 with the personal declaration, I will, I began to wonder, why isn't there a Selah at the end of verse 12? I wonder if you were following me here. Why isn't there a Selah? It seems like there should be one. There is such an obvious transition here in verse 13. Why is there not a Selah at the end of verse 12? At the end of each section of the psalm, the worshiper is to pause and reflect. But at the end of verse 12, there is no such marker, though we would expect to find one here. I began to wonder why. And then I thought, the lack of the Selah, where we might expect to find one, does give the impression that the psalmist, having considered God's marvelous work of redemption and his faithful preservation of his people, cannot wait to give glory to the Lord. You do get that sense as you, as you read through this psalm. Here we have been invited to worship. We have been called to come and see and to consider what God has done. But immediately after this consideration of God's preservation of his people, the psalmist rushes to worship. There is no call to, to stop and to contemplate these things, but rather the psalmist rushes to worship. He sprints to the temple in verse 13. He cannot wait to go. And if we were to sing this psalm, I think we would feel the same sensation. Perhaps we would experience a musical interlude to leave time for reflection after part one and part two. But after considering part three of this psalm, we would, along with the psalmist, run to the temple to respond to his call to worship, to give glory to give glory to God, the glory that is due his name. We do not worship at the temple, brothers and sisters, for Christ, the true temple of God, has come. And we do not spill the blood of bulls and goats and worship, for Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, has shed his blood to atone for sin once and for all. We do not run off to the temple in Jerusalem to offer up shouts of joy to the Lord. No, instead, we run to assemble with God's people on the Lord's day. It is here that we give glory to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. But the message of this psalm is the same, isn't it? Having considered the greatness of God's works, we are to run to worship. We are to respond by giving glory to God in the church, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We must be eager to come and to worship and to give glory to God. Brothers and sisters, in times of difficulty, in times of difficulty, we cannot allow our hearts to grow frustrated or hard or cold, but we must instead fix our eyes upon the marvelous works of God and be prompted to worship and be eager to do so. Lastly, 
in verses 16 through 20, we encounter a very personal testimony from the psalmist. Come and hear, he says, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. You will notice that this is the most personal portion of the psalm. Here we are given a glimpse into the psalmist's heart. And you will notice that the audience has also changed. Instead of a call to all the earth, here we find a call to all who fear God. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul, he says in verse 16. It's as if the psalmist is now speaking to those who have joined him at the temple. These are the ones who have considered the marvelous works of God and who have run with him to the temple to give God praise. And what does he share with them? He shares what God has done for his soul. He testifies to God's faithfulness, to his willingness to forgive sin and to hear his prayer. He blesses God because he has not rejected his prayer or removed his steadfast love from him. This is a very tender portion of, of the psalm. Here it is, this, it is as if the psalmist is testifying to the congregation assembled and he gives glory to God for his steadfast love. What a marvelous and fitting conclusion to this psalm, which began with a call to worship in response to the marvelous works of God in redemption. And also we had at the beginning that reminder of the judgments of God. Remember verse 3, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. But here at the conclusion, the psalmist testifies to the mercy of God and to his steadfast love. Those who run to the temple to worship, who confess their sins and turn from them, they do not cherish iniquity in their hearts. What do they find? They find forgiveness. They find God's love. This was the experience of the psalmist. He ran to the temple. He did not cherish iniquity in his heart. He sang high praises to God. He cried out to God for mercy. And what did he receive? He, he received mercy. He received the forgiveness of sins. He received the steadfast love of the Lord. The Lord heard his prayer. And we know that this forgiveness of sins is only possible through faith in the Christ that God has now sent. Brothers and sisters, this is a marvelous conclusion to this psalm. The nations have been called to come and to give worship to God, and they have also been called to come and to consider Consider what the Lord has done. They have even heard the testimony of the psalmist concerning the mercy and grace of God that has been shown to him. This is what God has done for his own soul. Brothers and sisters, the nations ought to come. They ought to come and receive mercy, to receive forgiveness, and to give God the glory. We must do the same. Brothers and sisters, we are to do what the psalmist has done. We are to do what the psalmist has done. We are to run to the temple. And when we assemble together in God's house on the Lord's day, we must come together and remember what God has accomplished for us in Christ. He has forgiven us all our sins, and he has redeemed us from the curse of the law, the power of the evil one, and the fear of death. And we are to remember that he is always with us to refine, preserve, and protect us. 
And having considered these things anew and afresh, we are to worship, we are to sing joyous praises to our God and testify to one another concerning all that God has done for our souls. He is faithful, brothers and sisters. He is eager to forgive our sins and to hear our prayers when we gather in his temple in Jesus' name. While it is undeniable that this past year was a difficult one, as God's people, we have reason to shout for joy and to give thanks. And we are to go on in confidence, knowing for certain that his steadfast love endures forever. Would you bow with me now for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that you have accomplished our redemption. We thank you that you are preserving us even now. We thank you that you are with us in the midst of trials and tribulations. And we thank you that we may know for certain that these trials and tribulations that we face are not meaningless, but they are here for a purpose to remind, to refine us as silver and gold. Father, help us to know this for certain. Father, help us to endure days of difficulty. Help us to never lose our joy, but to come before you Lord's Day after Lord's Day with thanksgiving in our hearts. God, make us confident people. Strengthen our faith. Father, help us to thrive as we sojourn in this world. May we give you the glory in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.